This morning we're closing out first. I'm second. Good morning, everybody on television. Where you at, Brenda? How y'all doing? This morning we're closing out Second Peter, chapter three. And just as a general comment, I want you to. I think you already get this, but I want to make sure you get it. Everything Peter has been saying, Anton, may I uh, repeat that? Everything Peter has been saying, Lisa, may I repeat that? Everything Peter has been saying is as a consequence of and a revelation of, you see, when the teacher says something two or three times, you should be taking notes, I'm telling you. Everything Peter has been saying, emphasizing, teaching, warning, encouraging, is a consequence of, and a revelation of, the Word of God. He has not said anything of instruction, encouragement, warning, explanation, whatever, that is not firmly grounded in the Word of God. And so, he has taken that Word that God has given. And remember, when Peter is writing this, there are some epistles of Paul floating around, if you would. He mentions Paul at the end of the chapter. But basically... He is talking about, when he's talking about scriptures, basically he's talking about what scriptures, A.J.? Old Testament. And so he is gathering up by the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit what God has already said from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi. And he is applying that to the new covenant revelation, the New Testament, the fulfillment of God's purpose in the church. And so everything he says is a consequence of the word of God. What does that tell us? That tells us one thing in particular. The most significant, important activity of our lives as believers is that we are allowing ourselves aggressively looking to getting into pursuing embracing etc into the word of god by depending upon and looking to and listening to and agreeing with the holy spirit in that mix amen that's essential. So let's go on this morning. In chapter 3, Peter's closing the epistle. And the way he closes this epistle, and one day I'm going to do this, I want to give us a listing. And I'll go on the internet and get information from others and have done it and compile a lot of whatever. It takes a little study. I want to compile and give us a revelation of how much, how often the writers of the New Testament 
ground everything that they're saying. Ground everything that they're saying. Eschatologically. They ground everything in the teaching and anticipation of the perusa. I think it's in your notes. P-A-R-O-U-I-S-A. You see that? What is the perusa? Do you have it in there? Comma, what? The return of Christ. Now, I use these terms so we can know better terms sometimes, bigger terms, whatever, other terms. Perusa means the visible return of Christ. Eschatological is the study of the end times. The end times, yes, we're part of that, but the real end time when Jesus returns puts an end to the old age and begins the inauguration of the new age, the new heavens and the earth, right? So everything of the New Testament is grounded in that coming day. Everything is grounded in that day. So the so-called teachers of truth and righteousness, these false teachers, were questioning and ridiculing the teaching that Jesus is coming back. Now, that may seem to us, well, you know, it's okay if they don't believe it, whatever. It's not as significant as the cross. It's not as significant as the virgin birth. It's not as significant as, and you name it. But I would say to you, not based on Peter Davidson, but based on what I believe the word of God is emphasizing, that we would be absolutely critically wrong in that. The understanding, the belief in, the standing upon, the anticipation of the perusa is absolutely critical. And in fact, if it were not for the perusa, God would never have created. There would be no creation. Hmm. You see, as they are undermining this and questioning it, Satan is seeking to undermine one of the central pillars of the Christian faith. In Colossians 1.23, it's called the hope of the gospel. You see, look, from the very beginning, what, when I say the very beginning, and when the Bible says the beginning, typically in Mark 1, it says the beginning of the gospel. The word beginning refers to what? In John 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember some of those biblical terms? What beginning? Where? When? All the way back to what? Genesis 1, 1. In the Beginning, God. Bereshit, Barah Elohim. In beginning, God. That's the beginning. And so in this way, you see, from the very beginning, rather, God's intention was what? What is God's central intention in creation? Why does he create? Why does one, one, Genesis 1, 1 there? Why is it there? Because God decrees into a time frame, into a creation frame, if you would, that who he is 
intrinsically in himself. This assay God, remember the assayity of God, uncreated, ever existing one, that who he is in himself, his very nature and his the character, meaning the outworking of that nature toward us, who he is intrinsically, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how he is how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another, etc. All of that, his glory may be manifested in a people who are the inheritance of the glory that he gives his incarnate son. Remember, Jesus is now glorified in the heavens as a man. That's God's central purpose, to be glorified in his people who are also glorified in the glory of his exalted son. Do we get that? That's what the Bible is about. And so this means this, that God's purpose, and I want us to get this. We were talking a little bit this morning before everybody came in. I don't want, I can't stand when believers see the Bible, it's just bits and pieces and categories, whatever. That's fine, but we need to see the Bible as a huge sweep, understanding the whole sweep of it, and then we can put the pieces together in a better way. So this means, and I hope this is in your notes, that God's purpose from Genesis 1-1 onward is revealed and explained, and I should have said fulfilled when? In Revelation 21 and 22. Everything that God does, beginning in Genesis 1-1, everything that God does, beginning in Genesis 1-1, has one goal, to be fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Where God is the God of his people and his people are, God is there, I am their God, they are my people. Remember that? They dwell together, Emmanuel. That's the fulfillment. And so all the history of the, all the history from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 21-22 is the history of God's progressive, purposeful, persistent movement toward that day when his eternal purpose, the manifestation of himself in a people who are in his son, will be culminating. That's what the Bible is all about. Everything about the Bible, everything that God does is about that. That means that everything is a progressive move. Nothing is more important than the other thing. Everything is an upward move until we finally get to the return of Christ where it's all wrapped up. And finally, here, here it is. This is where I was going the whole time. This is where Genesis 1-1 was going. Therefore, everything about this day is significant only because of that day. Amen? We are to live godly this day. Why? Because of that day. That day is the day that God is looking to continually. It's just like how many of you have had family to leave for vacation or move out of town or whatever? How many of us have had that to happen? How many of us 
they say they're coming back in three weeks. How many of us, everything between now and that day, three weeks from now, is about what? Them coming back and getting back together. Are you with me on this? Why do we feel that way? Because, you see, God has planted that in our hearts so we can have that huge anticipation of finally the family is together. That's God. That's God. So I know I take a little time on this, but I want us to see this. This is what the Bible is all about. God creating and gathering and dwelling in a family. Because he is in himself a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that in this human community, the divine community is manifested. Do we get, do we get that? Does everybody understand that? Very important to get. Everything between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21-22 is a record of how God achieves, me, achieves his eternal purpose in Christ for the church. All of these events record the progressive move of God to fulfill his eternal purpose for the creation. What is it? Romans 1-9. I'm sorry, 8-19. The revealing of the sons of God. That's where God is going. Romans 8-19. I think I have it in your notes as 19. It's 8-19. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. I mean, you know, here he's talking about why do this? What's going on? For our citizenship is in heaven. Why obey now? Why rejoice in suffering? Why resist evil? Why obey God? Why, 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 why? Because our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate, this body, into the conformity with the body of his glory. That's what's happening. That's where we're going. So now let's look at some of the verses here as we move through. So he begins to defend this, these outrageous attacks against the foundation of God's purpose. You see, if Jesus isn't coming back, if the promises of the return are false in any way, that means that God's total purpose is at risk. Do we get this? This is not just an attack against one of the things that we believe. The very foundation of what God is doing is built. What God is doing is built on the very foundation of the return of Christ. You see, the foundation is the return of Christ, us and God together, Emmanuel, and the whole building is constructed on that. And if we can break up the foundation, the building does what? It collapses. We don't normally think that way in the church. We don't normally hear too much preaching and teaching like that. It's kind of sometimes an afterthought. Jesus, you know, it's one of those things that, hey, this is an add-on. It's the central issue of the Bible. So if our family's away and they're coming back, what is the central issue relationally in our hearts until we get back? What is it? They're coming back. Not, oh, it's hot today and I can't know that. They're coming back one more day off, one more day off, one more day. We're getting closer until finally what? We're all home together. We're all home together. So let's start in verses chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, beloved, this is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm setting, I am stirring up you, your, 
I'm trying to read without my glasses because I'm getting used to having uh, no Cadillacs. I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words, the word of God. You see, remember the word of God, and you cannot remember that which you don't know. Peter bases the whole thing in where, Pharaoh? The word of truth. That you remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Who were they? The Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior given by your apostles. The New Testament writings. So Peter's purpose is to stir up their minds. To make clear their knowledge of God's purpose by reminding them of what they have already been taught by the word. Peter, as all of these men, apostolic teaching is always repetitive. Next week, we're going to begin a new series, and I'm going to base the series, I just felt this was the way the Lord is leading, on an overview of the, it's actually not a letter, but I'll call it the letter of Hebrews, and it's going to be talking about the superiority of Christ. And so, how many of us remember studying that some time ago? Now, what I would ask you to do is this. Without any help, just go home, take out your notebook, no Bible or anything, and go by memory, by what you know. List the major Old Testament writings that describe the coming of the Messiah as a man, as the Son. Don't have any reference, just do it. And if you think, oh, my word, I think I may know one or two. We need help in this. Do you, we see this? We need to have this, this basic structure in our souls. Because, friends, these days are the halcyon days, the good old days. Every day, this world is getting closer and closer to the coming of the Lord. And as it does, Satan is turning up the heat politically Economically, ethnically, every other league, he's turning up the heat. Do we see it? Yes. We need to have, we, we, we need to be better grounded. So that's where we're going next week for a few weeks. So Peter wants to stir them up. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, by the way, this is usually misquoted. How many of you have heard this quoted? You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, if you hear somebody quote that and that's all they quote, say, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. That's not in the Bible. Oh, it is in the Bible. I'll tell you where it is. And he, blah, 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 blah. I said, well, read the whole sentence. And it begins what? If you what? Continue in my word. What? Then. Then. You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Why? Because the word of God is true. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Remember that? John 17, I think it's 17, 17. Somebody could correct me on that. You shall know the truth and it will make you free. Why? Because as we know it, our minds are being sanctified, transformed. You remember Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Renewing of our minds. Remember by the transforming, the renewing of our minds. So Peter wants to stir up their minds 
by reminding them of the theological and eschatological truths and the bases of the Word of God. He's stirring us up. And so he knows that their minds need to be stirred up because like all of us, all of us need to have our minds stirred up. Amen? I remember one time I told someone in the church, we'll be studying the Gospel of John. This is years and years ago. And the person said to me, oh, I've already studied that. You know, it's like, oh, okay, okay, sure. You know, I've studied it too, but every time I look at it, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? These are things. Have you ever noticed that when you study the same epistle or the same book or the same prophet, that the first time you studied it, A.J., what you see this time wasn't in there the first time. You know it wasn't in there because you studied it. You read it. I mean, A.J.'s will tell you, he's leading a Hebrew study on what, Saturday morning? Friday night, whenever. He's going to tell you, oh, I don't need to study this because I know it all. He's going to tell you that. And then things are going to happen where God slips something in the Hebrews that A.J. said, that wasn't in the original. (laughs) That's how we think. So verses 3 to 10, what Peter is going to do is to deal with these issues by stirring up their minds. He's going to deal directly with the false teaching. Is there false teaching today about Jesus' return? Don't you see it and hear it subtly? Some are saying, that's fairy tale. It ain't happening. But so much of the teaching is subtle. And as Peter said in last chapter, secretly coming in among you. And they're teaching other issues that are emphasizing and making, as it were, absolute truth, the natural events. And these are the things that are happening. This other isn't going to happen. You must depend on science. You must learn to know the natural world and depend upon what nature tells us. Make that your dependence and you'll be okay. Do you hear it in what we're being told today? Science. Science. The education of man. So, verse 10, 3 to 10. By the time this letter comes, it writes, by the time the letter is written, it's about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And there is in the church a thinking, and understandably so, because the apostles are saying Jesus is coming back soon, the soon return. Now, if I said to you, Jesus is coming back soon, Celeste, you might interpret that what? Within the next few weeks, hopefully, maybe a year or two, but surely not more than a couple of years. If I said it's going to happen soon, Ronnie, that's our natural interpret. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah, that's a man. Tomorrow. And so, I'm going to take out the garbage soon, you know, like, oh, my word, three weeks later. You said soon. Well, soon means something different to me than it does to you. And that's the point. They felt 30 years. He hadn't come yet. Well, maybe tomorrow, you know, maybe whatever and and whatever. So they're anticipating this within their own lifetime. And so when Peter writes this, It's been 30 years we've been waiting for Jesus, and what? We still here. He ain't. Know this, first of all, that in the last days. Now, by the way, when do the last days begin? Some will say the resurrection of Jesus. Some will say the 
day of Pentecost, but right at that period of time. The birth of the church, that begins the inauguration of the very last days. We are in the last days. Know this, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Hey, where's Jesus? You said he's coming back soon. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues that has been for, and nothing's happened. Nothing's happened. Everybody, wait, there was a big movement years ago, and it wasn't wrong. I think it was just a little misapplied. A big thing about Jesus is coming back right now, and we're going to be looking for him in the 70s. Some of you remember that and so on. Those, you know, we were all, some churches were doing what they call, uh, um, what do you call, rapture practice, kind of like, no, no, people were doing these things. They thought Jesus was coming back. There, there were people saying, you know, in, in this date and so on. And it's, it's, it's misunderstanding the word of God. But what happens is when we do that and it doesn't happen, then it washes out what people are thinking that the word of God is saying. I'm not doing well with my time, David. Scoffers are attacking the Christian belief. And so, in order to correct this, Peter is going to give four responses. They're, un, they're attacking it. He's not coming back. So, let me give you four reasons. Verses 5 to 7. For when they maintain this, that where is he? Where is he? Where is he? It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You see, such scoffers were deliberately basing their mockery upon world events as they saw them and understood them, rather than upon the reliability of the word of God. Now, we're not going to go into all of these details here because that's not where our study is. But this is what's happening, basically. We're looking at the world. And when we look at the world, we see absolutely no evidence that Jesus is coming back. And when the church hears that and sees it too often, if we're not grounded in the word of God and knowing for sure that even though I don't understand this word and whatever, I believe it because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead says all of this is truth. Amen. Because of the resurrection, it's true. And so when the world says one, two, three, and it conflicts with what the Bible says, I will not believe what the world says. Are you with me on this? We must be grounded in the word of God. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. You see, these scoffers didn't understand God's timing. They're looking at the natural. Say, good night, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, how long is soon? I mean, we've seen all these events and it hasn't happened. A thousand years with God is but a day. A day is like a thousand, you remember? Now, that isn't to say... Therefore, that is a formula. Believers have done this. That's a formula. And now what we do is use that formula. So, for instance, the six days of creation, every day is a thousand years. Therefore, we're at. No, 
This is not a formula. It's a description of God's sense, if you would, or God's view of time in relation to our view. He could have said a billion years. Would it have made a difference? What is he saying? This God is outside of time. And his timing is perfect and always on time. And humanity is inside of time. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. Waiting one moment to another. One day to another. And it seems like interminable. But with God, it isn't like that. So God is looking at it not from a time perspective as we understand, but from a time perspective as he determines. Can we understand that? Do we see that? So we don't use this thousand years and apply it the other way, and that means this and, and, and whatever. That's, that would be inaccurate. See, what Peter's doing is quoting from Psalm 90, verse 4, to remind them that God's timing is different from our timing. You just read that psalm. You'll see it. It's, it's a reference. He's used that as a reference. to the, he's, What he said is a reference to what is a use of what Psalm 90, verse 4 says. God's timing is different. How many have asked God this? This one word, when? Anybody ever asked that question of God, when? Only one hand went up? When? All of us. And what are we looking for? We're hoping that God sees what's going on, understands it from our perspective, knows how difficult it is and how tired we are of it or impatient we are or frustrated we are, and that he will surely do it because surely he must understand as we understand time. Have you ever done this? Just not the way he is. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Verse 9. See, in these verses... He's giving you four reasons why the scoffers are wrong. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Oh, wait, stop, stop. Do you see the verse? Are you, do you have the verse right there? Are you looking? Are you with me? Do you have the verse? Stop for a moment. Now, verse 9. Think. Whom is being addressed? To whom is he writing, rather? Who is being addressed? To whom is he writing? Is he writing to everybody in the world? Are we with me? Is he writing to everybody in the world? So is what he's saying applicable to everybody in the world? No. He's writing specifically to whom, Renee? To us. Who? The body of Christ. He's writing to the church. Do we see that? This is a problem when people get into this verse and don't see that. What is the context? He's writing to believers. He didn't say, I'm on the Internet and everybody in the world. Let me tell you this. And he quotes verse 9. So the word you is what? Singular or plural? It's plural. And who are the yous? Usens. Usens are the yous. Did we say that? Now, so what is, the, why do I say that? Because look at the next part of the statement. What does is, what is the next part of the statement say, Floyd? Do you see it? Do you have your Bible? Oh, you don't, I'm sorry. Beth, what does the next part of the verse say? Verse 9. Is it in your notes? Okay. 
All right, first, second part of the verse it says, what? For what? Because God is what? He is not what? Wishing that any should perish, but that all should come what? To repent. In other words, he's wishing, Fred, he's wishing everybody be saved. That's yes and no. That's yes and no. Is he... <laughs> Is he talking to the world? So there is a teaching out there that because of this verse, this shows that body, God wants everybody in the world to be saved. Do you understand that? That's one of those loud Duncans. He takes after his grandmother. <laughs> Look, very important. The world, many, many teachers will say this. Many teachers will say this. This is a proof that God wants everybody in the world to be saved. And if you don't know the context, if you don't get the context, if you don't know your Bible, you're going to be thrown off. You must know your Bible. Is he writing to everybody in the world? Yes or no? No, he's writing to, he said, this is my second letter to you. Who? To the believers. Remember in chapter 1, verse, uh, uh, verses 1. So he says what? God is not willing that any of those among you, he's not willing that any of his people should perish. What does this mean? This means this, that God has a people to be saved from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. Correct? Are we with me? Are we hanging with me now? He has a people from the foundation of the world, God has a people, a specific number. It's not 144,000. That's not the number. He has a specific number. He has specific people. He has foreknown them. He births them into the world at particular times in different places, giving them all kind of different looks and shapes and whatever. Right? Then the Holy Spirit is in the world going out and birthing these who are God's people into the church, being born again. There's coming a day when the last one will come in. God is not willing that any of these who are his are going to be lost. This is not a comment that God wants everybody in the world because in John 17, Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world. We must get it straight. We must get it straight. We are to live anticipating Jesus' return. In these verses, these last set of verses, and I'll close this way, we must be diligent. We must be found in peace. We must be spotless and blameless. We must live in a way that anticipates the return of Christ. Why? Because on that day, each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord himself. Each one of us individually and each one of us will be judged. The word judge there means evaluated. How many of you know this? I know this personally. When as a child, one of the things that my mother did, although she was as she was, she kept a spotless house. So we were playing outside. When she called us to come inside, and I literally mean standing on the front porch, yelling our names, and we would hear our names, and then we would come, the three sheep, right? We would come to the front porch, onto the porch, and she would inspect us to see whether we were, what, clean enough 
or dirt, whatever, to what? Come into her clean house. She wasn't inspecting us as to whether we are her children. She was making sure that we were properly clean of the daily yuck of living. The judgment for a believer is that we're being clean of the daily yuck that we haven't been cleansed of through prayer and repentance and walking with God. And all of us will have yuck on us. So he will cleanse us one more time of all of that so that we will enter his home. That's what the judgment is about. Therefore, on this day, we want to live in such a way that there's less yuck to be washed away. Because in a mysterious way, and I don't understand it, so don't ask me questions, each one of us will receive rewards and standing of activity or or authority in heaven depending upon our works. Works will be rewarded. And some are going to have greater standing than others. Some will have greater gifting than others. Why? Because of our works of obedience. And what we'll take away from that will be our disobedience. So today we want to live in a way that when we get to heaven on that day before the Lord, our Heavenly Father can be as pleased as punch about our spiritual condition as his children. Amen. We want him to be as pleased, if you would, as he can be. So that closes out First, Second Peter. Next week, we'll start on a new uh, series. Thank you.